0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Ollie Southgate, and from the Broadway Podcast Network, this is Putting It Together, where on the first Friday of each month, I sit down with one of Broadway's best business minds to talk about the state of the art and their role in keeping the world's biggest theatre town at the top of the list on this month's show.
1: You know, it's who gets the voice at the table for the 90 minutes or if you're lucky two hours, you get those producers once a week. And who's talking to them in between those meetings? And how are all those people talking to one another and still getting their jobs done?
0: Broadway marketing director, Michelle Groner, founder of the Groner Group, sits down to talk about the many cults that make up a Broadway marketing campaign and just where she fits in
1: producers really are running the show. They're, they're meant to be thinking about casting, and they're meant to be thinking about you know their director, and, they're, and not just when the show's launching, but even when the show is a long-running show, right? It does tend to shift to marketing becomes the focal point, but they have businesses to run. They have other shows to launch. A lot of producers in our business, as you know, run other companies that have yeah. nothing to do with theater.
0: We discuss her eclectic career across some of Broadway's biggest players, including Sereno Coin, Disney Theatrical, and Stage Entertainment. So let's find out how Michelle Groner puts it all together.
1: Theater has truly always been a part of my life. I saw my first show when I was four in 1978. If you want to do the math, feel free. <laughs> um, it was at the Lunfontein Theater. It was Peter Pan starring Sandy Duncan. Oh, fun. Um, my grandmother loved theater. My mother loves theater. My mother lives here in Manhattan and sees probably 20 shows a month. I mean, it's ridiculous how much theater she sees. And it was just always part of what we did. I grew up, I was born in Queens uh, and then grew up in Rockland County, just north of the city. And we came in, I would say at least once a month, um, back in ye oldie days when <laughs> the KTS booth was all cash and hard tickets.
0: How fun. Um,
1: and you had to line up at like 8 in the morning. I remember like on Saturday mornings getting up at like 6am to like get in the car and come to the city so we had enough time to find a parking spot and get in line. And
0: tickets were at a record high of $29. Is I it? I like think they of... might have been like $30. I think <laughs> right, that
1: sounds right. about right. And so yeah, we just always did it. The music was always on in my house. I just from the very young age of probably three or four, I just loved it. I just I was like, these are my people. And so yeah, I Kind of just grew up all around it, and to be honest, and I know this is a lot of what you talk about in your podcast. I don't think I ever really realized that there was like a business side of Broadway. I mean, I know that right. sounds so naive now, but um, you know, this is before the internet, and um, I just always thought if you were going to work on Broadway, you had to be an actor or or a lighting person, right? Like I didn't understand that there was this whole huge industry full of people who like made the show go on Mm -hmm. um and so it was always a hobby but I knew that I wasn't going to be an actress like that wasn't really my thing and so uh, when I got to college I kind of was like well I guess that's it for theater for me because you know it was the early 90s and everything had crashed and Clinton had just been elected and was like okay I guess I'll be a communications major or some other businessy business thing right and I had no idea that I could actually work in theater
0: Uh Um, well that's exactly that is exactly why this show even exists in the first place it's why
1: it makes me so happy that there are things like this now and you know other organizations you know the league just started has a mentoring program and just started that website about kind of jobs in theater and I think all of those things I wish I had known about them I'm kind of glad I didn't actually because I went into it so blind (laughs) that I just kind of Found my way through a series of very strange universal events, but yeah, I mean, it is kind of amazing now that people who are coming up actually can learn about you know GMS or ticketing or marketing or press offices or you know the business of show.
0: And so for you, that business is marketing. It so is. is. That, so you were communications major. At what uh, point? actually
1: was an English major? Communications oh. was too hard.
0: Oh, <laughs> I see. <laughs> um, great. Well, then if you didn't study marketing, mm. then how did you end up in that like bucket of jobs?
1: Well. <sighs> Right, right after school, I actually went and did um, an internship in British Columbia in Canada working for a man who no one had ever heard of at the time, whose name is Mark Burnett. He's a little...
0: Sure, if you're sure. a fan
1: of reality TV, you now know who Mark Burnett is. But Mr. He, Apprentice. Yes, but he produced something called the Eco Challenge, which was shown on the Discovery Channel at the time. Um, and my dad actually had a friend who worked for a company who had, was developing one of the very first digital tools for editing. It was called Avid. Those of you who worked Editing, I'm sure, know it well, but at the time it was kind of a new technology. Um, and they were hiring interns to go out and live in Vancouver for a month while they helicoptered tapes every day from the race on the side of the mountain down to this kind of ski lodge where they it was the first ever off site linked up Avid editing suite. And my job was literally to like push the tape in and hit digitize. (laughs) (laughs) And and I actually through that thought, wow, editing is really fascinating. I'm really fascinated by this process. I think this kind of takes into account a lot of my skills, which is communication and organization and like seeing how things come together. And maybe I'll be an editor. I mean, I truly had no idea what I wanted to do, right? Like I knew I wasn't going to go be an English teacher, that's for sure. And when I came home, my mother said, well, how are you going to, like, earn a living, right? Like, how are you going to pay the rent? And I thought, I don't know. And she said, I have these friends that are opening this little local theater. They're looking for, like, someone, a pair of hands. It'd be perfect for you, and it's in theater. You'll love it. Go do it. And I said, OK. And I went, and it was a, a small theater, Um, up in Rockland County in Nyack, which is like a real artsy town, um, called the Helen Hayes Performing Arts Center. And it was opening, it was meant to be kind of like a paper mill. That was their Uh their goal. (laughs) And I got hired, I think my title was company manager when I first got hired, which is nothing like what an actual company manager does. Um, And I was meant to stay for three weeks, and I wound up staying for a year. And in that year, I learned about what the actual company managers did I understood what general managers did I met and worked with a bunch of the marketing people um, and actually I I worked a lot with um, some of the casting things that they did there too and that gave me a lot of exposure to all the different tentpoles of business that helped run a theater and so when it was time to kind of leave that job and I was moving into Manhattan I had been living at, at home for a year um, to help take care of some family stuff um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do but I knew now that there were jobs that I could go after and And by happenstance, I wound up interviewing for a job at um, Gray Advertising, which at the time had a Broadway division, Um, and they were a big Broadway agency, and... I kind of went in blindly for an interview and I kind of I got hired on the spot like literally right. the president of that division said to me I'm not supposed to tell you this to you uh because we got to go through HR but I'm gonna hire you so don't take another job and I was like oh okay <laughs>
0: great hey, that's, a, that's a nice way to leave an interview huh? totally it was awesome I yeah. think I was like
1: 22 you know and I remember my first day and I knew nothing I mean I really knew nothing my first day I was sitting at my desk and my boss um a man named John Bierman who is active uh, as a producer now in Broadway who I adore came into my office and dropped this is how old I am dropped a box of reel-to-reel tapes that were radio spots off on my desk and said, these need to get traffic to the stations. And I said, okay. And he walked out of the office and I turned to the girl sitting next to me and I said, I don't know what that
0: means. (laughs) (laughs) I I said, traffic,
1: it sounds like they have to go somewhere. She's like, yeah, that's what traffic means. And I was like, oh, okay. And I literally, and they were were addressed. There were like addresses and stuff on the boxes. And I went to go put my coat on and she's like, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to go drop these off at the radio stations. And she said, don't call a messenger. That's what they're, and I was like, what's a messenger? Like, I mean, really, like, talk about not knowing anything. Right. Um, But honestly, like it was very clear within the first two months that I was there. I was like, I found my jam. Like I thank whatever door opened in the universe for me. And it was clear to me and it was clear to my bosses. And it was – I just was like, oh, I get it now. I get what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I was – you know, listen, I was very lucky. It was a time when marketing was quite different. It was a much simpler time. Mm -hmm. Um, And – I wound up working on some really big shows in my first year. I worked on The Last Night of Ballyhoo, which won the Tony that year for Best Play. Um, I worked on Scarlet Pimpernel, which was a big, big musical – Um, At the time at the Minskoff Theater, Um, I worked on some smaller shows um, with producers who have gone on to be really influential in the industry. I worked on a little off-Broadway show called Snake Pit that was produced by these relative unknowns named Daryl Roth and Hal Luftig um, and a man named Ted Snowden. And um, yeah, I just I don't know. I I feel like my whole career, uh, listen, I've worked hard, but I've also been extremely lucky to kind of be in the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. Um,
0: do you remember what your first one was your first client
1: Ballyhoo was the first meeting I ever went to okay Um, and And how was that I just remember thinking "I, I can't believe this is real. Right. Like, I get to do this, and I get to talk to the people who make these shows. And I'm sitting in this giant conference room, and they're talking about casting, and they're talking about, you know, audience. And I just, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. My, my mind was blown. I, I couldn't believe that I was lucky enough to be at that table. Right. And I, then I remember John saying to me, um, well, you're going to have to go see the show. It was like, truly, it was like my first day. And he, he said, you'll have to go see the show. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm so poor. I, I can't afford it. <laughs> and, and he said, so what day do you want to go? And I said well, I, you know, when do, do we get paid? <laughs> and he said, no, no, you, you get to go for free right. so that you can work on the show. Right. And I was like, you what now? I was oh. like I go for fr- like that also was just I right. couldn't I do remember very clearly um when Pimpernel opened going to opening night and the playbill had my name in it you know in the back where they list you know everyone's name is really tiny and, mm-hmm. and the advertising staff and my name was in it and I remember showing it to my mom and she cried oh, and it was that's and it so was cute. and it was amazing it was to this day I literally still and sometimes you know in my business now sometimes I'm on the title page which still blows my mind
0: <laughs> right well if you want to know a fun full circle moment yeah. obviously I done work in london and elsewhere in the world for a really long time but with broadway always kind of being like an endpoint goal the first time i walked into a broadway ad meeting and had that moment was the band's visit with you Yay. and the first time i saw my name in a playbill was the prom with dory berenstein our esteemed producer amazing um so this Isn't is all like
1: the greatest feeling in the whole world it was
0: so bizarre it was just like oh okay i did it
1: yeah Great. i've literally been doing this since 1996 Great. and i every time i see it i'm like Pinch me! I right. cannot believe I'm just like the luckiest girl in the world. Girl. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a stretch, but I'm, <laughs> I'm the luckiest lady in the world. Sure, um, I, I still really do feel that way, and yeah. I and I still get excited when there's a new show, and I still am amazed um by the people that I get to work with every day. And you know, it's very rare that I get starstruck, mostly just because we're around a lot of cool people all the time. But I always get kind of gratitude struck. Like you know, I get very like I. I'm so grateful to be part of these teams that work together. I was listening to a bunch of your other podcasts and I was listening to Carl talk about how nice it is to just be with people who want to do this for a living. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I could sell toilet paper for a living and I'm sure I'd have good days and bad days, but it's still toilet paper. Right, right. right. And Absolutely. it might be easier because everybody needs it. Yeah. Right. There's no there's no question that you're going to sell some, mm-hmm. um, but to get to do it, you um, for something I believe in, and I believe in with all my soul as an important part of humanity. It's I know that sounds really grandiose, but it's really how I feel.
0: No, absolutely. I was going through your LinkedIn. Mm. You have you have some impressive tenures with some big players. Uh, you've been with Serena Coin, Walt Disney Company and Stage Entertainment, three of the like cornerstone companies yeah. that sort of keep Broadway what it is. Yeah. Talk to me about those three companies specifically and like what you picked up individually from each of those
1: well i went to Serena in god you looked at my linkedin what year was it 99 i think 98 something that like that right. um, it, yeah. and at the time they had i think they were celebrating their 21st or 20th i had had a big anniversary i think it was 20th like a, the year before um and nancy coin and matthew sereno actually both were still there and still really active in the business and you know they were hugely impressive and slightly intimidating um and i just i learned so much there in terms of kind of the scope of what we did and how it could affect the tenure of a show and and how we could really make a difference in a show's trajectory. And, right. and, and, you know, it also was another example of just getting to a place and being like, oh, I'm home. You know, everybody there, no matter what their background was, whether or not they had a marketing PhD or they were like a kid off the street who was some, the assistant to the assistant, they all just loved theater so much. They just loved it. They loved it like I loved it. Right. And I, you know... Again, growing up, you know, you're kind of a weirdo if you love theater sure, as much absolutely. as I did. You know, except at camp where everybody loved it. But um, did you go to theater camp? Of I totally you, did. Um, uh, but uh, you know, the the passion that came out of that, and the way people worked so hard. I mean, we all just worked our asses off. You know, I used to, I remember I used to be there sometimes till 10, 11 o'clock at night. And again, I was young, so it was that was kind of okay. But uh-huh. it it just felt exciting. But also, no one there took themselves too seriously. You know, it was like right. we're not saving lives. We're putting on a show here. And um, and they just had so much history, so much rich history of the depth and breadth of the shows that they had worked on. You know, the, the agency actually started um, – Nancy and Matthew had been in another agency and had stolen a chorus line out from under them and started Serena Coin with a chorus line. I mean that's a true story right. um, about how they – founded their own agency and the, and you know growing up course line for me was like the holy grail like i'm sure some of our listeners either it's you know wicked or lame is or but course yeah. line for me was that yeah, was yeah, the show sure. and um and you know everyone though unbelievably impressive was unbelievably approachable everyone was as smart as it got um and everyone worked really hard it's so, like that for me it was about the the pace of work and but the enthusiasm with which i think they all kind of went into it and that's honestly still true of sereno coin today like when i go there for meetings i feel that same energy from that agency and right. i love that it's still like that at 40 something you know right. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. At Serenal Coin, I actually worked on the Disney account. Right. Um, and I was then,
0: going to ask. I was guessing that's how that happened. Yeah, that but, is yeah. how it
1: happened. Um, I, I got hired and there were two jobs open, actually. One working on another account and one working on the Disney account. And again, Universe opened the right door for me. I got put on the Disney account. Um, Lion King was, I think, a little less than a year old. So it was kind of at the peak, peak, peak Lion King. Beauty had been running for four years or so. Um, and they had done one out-of-town version of Aida uh, in Atlanta. Uh, But it was about to go to Chicago. And it was kind of this really exciting time at Disney. You know, they had hit big with Lion King, obviously. And it was clear that the division was going to kind of gel and kind of coalesce around these big hit shows and that there was going to be a life beyond, you know, these initial outings to Broadway, which, quite frankly, if you know anything about the history of Disney Theatrical, was kind of Michael Eisner's whim of like, I really, he also, you know, grew up loving Broadway and talks all about it in his memoirs and things and, um I think, you know, beauty was uh, very much developed by um, the theme park staff. Um, You know, Rob Jess Roth came from the the theme park world. And so I think when um, Tom and Peter took over and had Lion King on their hands, it was a real opportunity for Disney to become what we all know it as today. But at the time, it it wasn't that, right? Right, And and the staff was much smaller and they had outside general management. They had a lot of outside, you know, consultants the way other producers do. And they've obviously since brought it all in-house. But... It was a very exciting time and then um, after three years on that account and, and various other things while I was there, somebody at, at Disney left and they called Nancy and said, um, so we are about to put out a job rec, you know, out into the world but actually we've been thinking and we'd really like to call Michelle and see if she'd like to come over. Would that be okay with you?
0: Um, oh boy, that's not that's not the order that usually goes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's I nice know.
1: It, well, listen, you can't not respect Nancy Coyne right? Yeah, like she's of course. Um, everything I can't even begin. Like words don't even begin to describe her. And she said no. <laughs> she oh, said really? <laughs> she said no, you can't have her. Um, and then I guess she went home and like slept on it. And the next day, uh, you know, there's an intercom in the old office. There was an intercom system, and I heard I was sitting at my desk and I heard Michelle Granner, or uh, it was Holland then Michelle Holland, please come to Nancy Coyne's office. And I was like am I in trouble? Like what did I, like in my head, I'm like, you know, go through the Rolodex, like what did I do? What what could this possibly be about? And she called me into her office and the true story and I will, I forever am grateful to her. Um, She said, sit down and close the door and I said to her, am I getting fired? And she said, did you do something that you think would make you get fired? And I said, (laughs) no. And she said, so why would you say that? And I said, I don't know. And uh, I sat down and she said, look, you know, this happened, and Disney called me, and she said, and I told them no, and I said, oh, good. And, you know, to be fair, and I love them dearly, but they were a bit of a messy client at that time. They were in a huge amount of transition. Tom and Peter were, Peter was running the studio. Tom was running feature animation. They had a woman who was the head of marketing who had come from publishing who didn't have a lot of background in theater. They were a very difficult client Mm -hmm. at the time, Um, and Nancy said, you know, I said no to them, but I've been thinking about it, and here's what I think. She said, I think that For you, this is a huge opportunity, and it is my mission in life to support women in their careers. She said, and for me, it will make them a better client because they'll have someone there who will understand that you can't just be like, push a button and make it blue tomorrow. Although, actually, now you can. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, you couldn't. Um, And she said, and and look, I'm not going to make you go. I'm not kicking you out the door, and it will make me sad to lose you. But she's like, I'm telling you as a mentor, this will be a good thing for your career. And I said to her, but this is like my family. And like, I don't want to leave. And she said, you don't have to leave. And we could pretend like we never had this conversation and like we can move on. She's like, but I'm telling you, I think you should do this. Take the night and think about it. And let's talk about it again tomorrow. Yeah. Were you Um, you
0: being polite or did you truly not want to? No, I truly was like terrified to go
1: there. Okay. I, I really... I'm a creature of comfort, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was
1: very happy. It was, as I said, like, I just felt surrounded by excellence at Sereno Coin. I felt like I was surrounded by some of the smartest people in the business. I loved what I was doing. I really was having – and I was young, you know, and I was having a hard time imagining what life would be like on the other side and what that job looked like. I didn't really – I don't think I would have gone had she not kind of pushed the baby bird out of the nest, which is kind of how I say she did it. And I went. And again, it was one of those things. It was like, hurrah. Like, oh, right. This is where I'm supposed to be now. Um, And mostly because it was the most exciting time there, right? Like it had gone from however many employees – Uh, you know, probably 20 or so to like 100 really quickly. And there was so much happening. You know, we opened show after show. I mean, at one point, I had five shows on sale at once, which was crazy town. (laughs) You know, I just again, I feel so fortunate to be right place, right time in terms of the kinds of stuff I got to do at Disney and got exposed to that I absolutely would not have learned anywhere else in the business. Now there's some bigger producers. And now there's some kind of global franchises if you will right but at the time that didn't really exist and you know I got to do things like fly to Burbank and meet with the heads of media and strategy for ESPN and ABC TV and the theme park and talk about ways they marketed their verticals and you know I got to before anybody else was doing Google AdWords we were doing it and before anybody else was I, you know, no one had websites. We didn't have websites. Who had a website? You couldn't buy a ticket that way, sure. right? But we made them, right? And so yeah. because of the strength of the brand of Disney and because of the, the – I always say it was kind of the strength of the of the, the the catalog and the titles plus the power that they had just as a company as a whole plus very, very much being under the tutelage of the amazing Tom Schumacher, who I just cannot say enough good things about, much like Nancy. And, and Andrew Flatt, um, who was my direct boss there, who's still there and is unbelievable and kind of in charge of all things, ticketing, marketing, press, you name it, education, licensing. I just was really lucky to be exposed to a lot of stuff that I don't know that other people that were as young as I was um, were getting exposed to. Right. Again, that's pure luck that has nothing to do with my skill, right? But um, so I was there for almost almost a decade. And again, I was—I really thought I would die there. Like I would go out feet first. (laughs) Then Stage Entertainment, which was a huge partner of Disney, right? Like if you go see The Lion King in Hamburg, it says Stage Entertainment presents Disney's The Lion King. Right. right? right. We had a very big working relationship with Yope and his company at the time. they decided to expand into the US, and um, they called me and said, we're opening this office. We want to become big players in the US market, and we know you, right? Like when Mary Poppins goes to Schevenhagen, apologies, I probably said that wrong. <laughs> sure. um, uh, you know, I was the person who was telling them, here's how you market it. Here's what it looks like. Here's pros and cons and pitfalls and hurdles. And so they called me, and they said, do you want to come? Again, I wasn't sure that I really wanted to go. And at that point, I, you know, I had gotten married, I had had kids, um, and I thought, this is the age at which you have to do stuff that scares you a little, or you're gonna get bored eventually. And I wasn't ever bored at Disney. I mean, people used to say to me, you know, how many years can you work on the Lion King and sell the same ticket? And I was like, I could have done that for the next thousand years. <laughs> right. And I'm serious. There's, there is always someone for whom it is their first time ever at the Lion King. Or it is their, it, at Disney, very likely their first time ever inside of a Broadway theater. Sure. And that, really like pumped me up and kept me going. And you know, the idea that (laughs) I always say it would have been very hard to break Lion King, right? Like I would have had to really screw up my job to break that show. (laughs) So the idea that we could like test things and and do things that other shows couldn't because they were so kind of on that hamster wheel about, you know, the next weekly nut and are we going to make it? And if we don't do these 10 things, then we won't be in business. Like Lion King never felt like that. So it did give you room to maneuver within the confines of what is marketing for a Broadway show. So yeah, I, I never got tired of it. I probably could have done it for the next 25 years right Um, but going to stage meant being the boss being in charge of that arm of of the business and it meant working on new titles and it meant um, being exposed in the business in a way I hadn't quite been because you know Disney's actually gotten much better in the last 10 years about kind of joining the community and being part of you know joining the league and Tom's actually the head of it now and um, kind of co-mingling but at the time we were kind of pretty walled off um, and I felt like if I was going to get to the next step or whatever that was going to be, it would be good to be back out there and, you know, talking to different theater owners and talking to different producers. And, and that's what Stage also represented for me. Um, right. And that's why I went.
0: And speaking of things that I'm sure must have been scary, then you go solo after that gig.
1: I did. Well, you know, for a hot second, I went back to the agency. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> um, you know, Stage, um, unfortunately, it, it got bought um, by a venture capital firm. Um, who was like, what do you mean we've lost a gajillion dollars in New York? Let's yeah, close that office. Sure. Um, and I knew that was coming and, and I kind of saw the writing on the wall. And um, I did actually go back to the agency for a very brief amount of time and quickly realized that kind of I had moved on from that point in my life. I, had, oh. I was so much more into um, a kind of 360 view of how shows got produced and it felt very limiting. Um, and right. so, yeah, I went out on my own, which I think is – I'm still – Kind of in denial about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was that thought process? Did you have a was there a, a client ready to go at that point? Yeah, that made so that's, think, what happened, right? okay. yeah, right, that's
1: what happened, right? Yeah, that's what happened. I mean, thank you, thank you, Paul Blake and Mike Bosner, um, my clients over at Beautiful, the Carol King musical, oh, sure. um, because I had been working on that show at the agency, and um, when I left, they were like, "What do you mean you're not going to be in our meeting on Tuesday?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I quit, so, <laughs> so that means I don't come." Yeah, and and they said, "No, no." Um, can you please just come anyway? And I thought, okay, well, this will be a good way to like make a tiny bit of money and like not freak out about not having a job yeah. <laughs> and having a mortgage and children. And um, and while I'm and I'll be part time, so I'll be able to figure out what I want to do elsewhere. Um, and so I went as a consultant. on beautiful, thinking it was going to last like three months, and you know, it lasted another three years. And um, very shortly after that, about a month or two after that. I got a phone call from someone who said, hey, I heard you're out on your own consulting. Can we talk to you about this other project? And I thought, OK, great.
0: Yeah.
1: And then it happened again.
0: <laughs>
1: and then at that point, my husband said, um, you realize you opened a business, right? And right. I said, I was like in denial about it, to be totally honest. I mean, I'm being candid. It probably makes me seem like a fool. But I really didn't know that it was viable. And then the more I started doing it, the more I started realizing and I know this is a theme that you ask a lot of your guests on the podcast, of just how much the business has changed in mm-hmm. the 20-something years that I've been doing it. And that actually, there was a real need for, call it what you will, a marketing director, a marketing strategist, uh, someone who holds everyone's hand. My title's a little different on every show. But right. there was a real void in that area. Um, and the fact that people were calling me made it all that much more obvious Um But, you know, the marketing of Broadway shows right now um, is really complicated. It's gotten, you know, I joke all the time that in 1996, we, uh, you know, we took an ABC in the New York Times. If you were a big show, you had a radio spot. Sometimes it was live. We called it rip and read, right? Live read the day after opening. And like if you were super big, you had a bus side right? And like, and you took it out of the times. Like, and that was kind of it. I mean, mm-hmm. that, truly, I mean, to this day, I can still look at an ABC and tell you if it's going to gen, which means if it's going to fit. Right. <laughs> that was like a huge part of my job, right? Like, is it going to fit in the ABCs?
0: Sure. That's, um, we gotta You got to get those things right. Now, right.
1: It yeah. was a simpler time. Um, But you know, I think um, the marketing of Broadway and the selling of Broadway has gotten really complicated Um, in the last 20 years. And there are a lot more people involved. You know, there used to be at best, 10 of us sitting around a table and now there's, you know, there's like 25 people in an ad meeting and you're like, who are these people? I'm like, what's that? <laughs> sure. But they're all really important. Yeah. Right? They're, they're yeah, there yeah. for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of times, um, for producers, it's hard to kind of filter all of the different things that are coming at them right they're social and how does social fit into the strategy and what's the difference between paid social and organic social and
0: well I was going to say to be honest the biggest difference I recognize being here versus something like in the West End Mm -hmm. is that there's a lot more when I got here I I thought it was just that's how it worked on Broadway but it sounds like it's actually a thing that's happened just in the last like few years yeah the fragmentation of it between different people is a lot bigger a thing here completely do you think we're gonna see more of that happening in the next few years more like and now the marketing team is experts in each individual thing
1: i do i do think that that's the way things have been trending i I, listen i i'm not exactly sure how it will all shake out you know there's four or five really big agencies that i think are all unbelievably good at what they do and, Mm. and you work for one of them and talented and um you know but i do think it's gotten really complicated it's and i think yes you're right to say that you know it's <sighs> who gets the voice at the table for the 90 minutes or if you're lucky two hours, you get those producers once a week. And who's talking to them in between those meetings? And how are all those people talking to one another and still getting their jobs done? And like, right. how are we tying in what looks like kind of a social fun thing? Like, how is that actually fitting into the overall paid strategy for the show? Mm-hmm. And where does advertising fit in? And there's the blurry line between advertising and marketing and what does that all really mean? And, you know, that's gotten real weird. Right, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think... My years at Disney in particular, but also at Stage, Disney eventually brought almost everything in house, right? Presses in house, ticketing's in house, um, general management's in house. Um, and as part of my role there, I kind of sat at the nexus of all those things and saw how it could work if everybody was on the same page and we all worked <laughs> for the same company, you know? Mm. And even then, it was hard sometimes, right? right? To get, you know, the GM arm of the office to listen to the things that the press. Room was saying to listen to the things that I in the marketing group would say, and to top it all off, you know, sales would be arguing that we shouldn't be doing it the way we were doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And we all worked towards the same goal for the same employer, right? In in a in a relatively corporate environment <laughs> compared right. to some other environments that you and I might encounter. Uh-huh. And so that skill actually is the thing I think I took away from Disney that is the reason I am able to do what I do now, right? Is there's lots of different stakeholders. They all have different motivations. And ultimately, I think everyone has the show's best interest at heart. I never question that on anyone's team ever. We wouldn't do this otherwise, right? We would go sell toilet paper. Right. But everyone has their own business to run. Everybody has their nut to make. Everybody has other clients, right? Everybody has a lot going on, right. and the fact of the matter is the internet, just just when it was just straightforward advertising on the internet, it had already really gotten complicated. Mm-hmm. Now to, to add in social media to that and what does that really mean, I think it's just – it is – hard it's and the producers really ultimately right are running the show they're they're meant to be thinking about casting and they're meant to be thinking about you know their director and their and not just when the show's launching but even when the show is a long-running show right it does tend to shift to marketing becomes the focal point but they have businesses to run they have other shows to launch a mm. lot of producers in our business as you know run other companies that have yeah. nothing to do with theater
0: once a show is up and running and open and it's got you know through its Tony season marketing yep. becomes really the only pliable thing right completely it's the only thing you can keep. Changing about the show. Well, I mean you is, can
1: change casting, you can right, change I mean right. there are some things, but yes, for the most part that's yeah. true.
0: What the show is, how it yes, looks right. to the world. Exactly. Fundamentally, that's the only way it's going to change. Exactly. I've never had this problem before, but I have, it seems too many questions. So <laughs> we're gonna throw it to a break right now. Uh, we'll be back with more from the Groner Group's Michelle Groner right after this.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer.
0: As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. So as well as giving you the opportunity to delve into the minds of the people who run the Great White Way, another super exciting thing about putting it together is that it's part of the Broadway Podcast Network, a new place to find any and all things theatre-related in podcast form. As well as us, there's a whole bunch of other shows on the platform, including Breaking Broadway with Kerry Butler, Behind the Curtain, Equity One, Broadway's Happy Hour, and many, many more. To find out more about BPN, visit broadwaypodcastnetwork.com and take a look at the other shows we've got on offer. That's Broadway Podcast Network, We're back on Putting It Together with the Groner Group's Michelle Groner. Um, So we were just talking a bit about the the fragmentation of roles and the the increased number of people at the table. I have to try and think of a sensitive way to word this. Oh, just saying. I think it's, you know, you're you're not easily offended, I know this. (laughs) Not really. Um, Some shows have someone in your role, a marketing director, and the majority don't as things stand at the moment. Sure. Do you think that's going to be something that continues to change? Is that, is that going to be increasing? I,
1: mean, I hope their... so. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Look, I'm biased. I think every show could benefit from a marketing director, whether it's me or one of my competitors, and there right. are a few of us doing this. Um, again, simply because I think there's just so much data coming at you to have one person kind of streamlining it and rolling it up into kind of a more 30,000-foot, what does that mean, really? Right. I think it's beneficial for everybody, but uh, no, I don't think that every show will have one. I I think that there still continue to be producers who want to be that person and and don't want to have another person in the room kind of telling them that. I think that there are GMs who for a very long time have kind of functioned in that role and will – desire to continue to function in that role and and should if that's what they want um, and that usually, you know, they have a very close partnership with with the producers. Interestingly, I think a lot of people complain kind of about the commercialization of Broadway, um, Mm -hmm. but I actually think we're in this real um, renaissance or renaissance, as you might say, um, (laughs) of different scales of productions. You know, you look at something like Slave Play and then you look at something like Mean Girls and it's amazing that they fit on the same couple of blocks, but they do, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Does Slave Play need a marketing director the same way Mean Girls does? I mean, again, I would argue yes, but but I think that you know that has a very different focus in what it wants to accomplish than other shows, right? right. And again, I, and I, by the way, I saw Slave Play and it was amazing. So wherever you're listening, if it comes to your town, please go see it. Um, <laughs> and I work on Mean Girls and love it, love it, love it, right? So I think it really depends on the show and what the desire of that producer is and what their end game is, right? Is it rolling out to become a global thing, right? Shows now, the IP goes all over the world, right? It goes from here to London or vice versa. It goes, rolls out to Australia. It rolls out to stages, many theaters throughout Europe. It, You know, there are titles like that, that those, I think it's kind of crazy not to have a marketing director, honestly. Um, uh-huh. Because I just think that the way you establish the marketing for your tentpole version of that production then affects that title for years to come, especially right. if you as the producer are planning on staying attached to that title in any way. Right. And I even think for some of the smaller shows, it's really – it's a lot harder to get attention in the world. I think, you know, we all have a computer in our pocket. We all are streaming till our eyes bleed. We all are completely tweaked about what we're doing next in our lives. And so how do you shake your fist loud enough and say, hey, I'm here. Come see me. And how are you finding the right audience for that? And how are you not wasting your dollars on people that aren't going to come, right? right. Those, that's a, sometimes a harder assignment. Um,
0: so one of my questions actually was going to be what you think the challenges are for a Broadway show trying to cut through the noise with a much smaller budget than most of the people advertising out in the world. Yeah, Targeting is essentially what it sounds yeah, like yeah. to you. Like being very specific in figuring out who your audience is rather than never try to be broad.
1: Well, I, listen, I, I think there are some shows that are broad, right? But I also think that <laughs> saying this is a strange thing to come from me, but marketing can only do so much for a show. It, it can't sell... A bad show if it's bad. It can't make a good show a better show. Bob Winkle always says, the head of the Schubert organization, always says, you know, it can move the needle maybe 10% either way. But that 10% is an important 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true of press, too. I think, you know, the making of Hamilton, right? So much of that, you know, Jeffrey hasn't spent a ton of money in advertising. He hasn't needed to. God bless him, you know. But so much of that was press um, and kind of the the viral nature of the way that rolled out. And, you know, that's lightning in a bottle. You can't necessarily capture that. And I also think that there's a danger, actually, in, in over-targeting. I've actually seen that happen very recently on a bunch of shows where because we can now, right, because we suddenly have this ability to quote-unquote target only the people we want to talk to, mm-hmm. we sometimes lose the forest for the trees on that end as well. And we sometimes need to go back to some good old-fashioned tricks like some bus sides and a billboard, right? Yeah. yeah. And that is actually what I do help clients with is finding the balance between A, understanding who your audience is really early on and the way in which that morphs as the show kind of grows up and gets legs and kind of becomes a toddler and then a teenager um and then how much are you willing to put against either finding more of those people that look like your current audience are you pivoting and saying actually i think that audience is nice but i'd like to have this audience too and we don't have them at all let's go after them probably not going to happen but sometimes it does right um I want to do a mix of those two things. Um, I can't afford to do any of those things. Tell me what to do. Right. There's those are the kinds of conversations I have um, with producers. And um, targeting is hugely important because I'm going to make a number up, they're just, you know, however many millions of people in the US, I think it's 350 million, you know, probably 0.0001% of them will ever see a show, right? right? right. So it's not like TV, which has a much bigger reach. It's not like sports, which have a much bigger reach, right, where almost everybody in the country at some point or another will have watched a football game, right? Mm -hmm. It, It is quite different. And so it is how do you take much smaller budgets where you can't afford to have a lot of waste, right? Like the NFL can afford to have a lot of waste, because even when they don't hit a target Per se, they've targeted someone in the house who's probably the target. Like, there's some version of that where right. there's a lot less waste. Our budgets are minuscule. Our audience is minuscule. How do we amplify that? How do we find the right people at the right time in their life? You know, I joke all the time that um, I lived in the city for 20 years and we moved to New Jersey. And I was like, oh God, we have to like get a car, right? Like, that's what happens when you move to the, or maybe two when you move to the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. And, um, those people listening who have sat in meetings are rolling their eyes right now because I tell this story all the time. But it's true. You know, I used to watch primetime TV all the time. And, you know, I'm probably in my 30s. And when we before we all streamed everything. And, you know, every commercial at primetime is a car commercial. If you had asked me what commercials came on during primetime, I vaguely would have probably said car commercials. But once we signed the deed on our house and knew we had to get cars, I was like, today, I saw a Subaru commercial. Like yesterday, I saw a Jeep commercial, right? Right? right. It's it's that
0: notion of the context.
1: Yes. Of like, I am aware that cars exist. I am aware that people buy them. I'm vaguely aware. I know that Toyota's a car. I know that Honda's a car. I know that Subaru's a car. I think Subarus are for like crunchy granola people and Hondas <laughs> are for like middle, class, upper middle class people. Like, you know, there's yeah. some vague sense of what those brands mean. But until you are ready to purchase, you kind of don't plug into that advertising. And right. so how are we in our industry A, there for when the people are like, hey, I want to see a show. But B, how are we kind of in the ether before that? Right.
0: How are we priming them to even think about it in the first place? Right. So I've seen you and worked with you in situations both where you've been there from the outset and then also when you've been brought in a little later on because there's a new challenge, shall we say, (laughs) um, that a show needs help with. I imagine there's pros and cons to both. but. Totally. Do you prefer to be there from day one making those decisions or is it helpful to like see a show talking without your help and then go in and say this isn't really working
1: selfishly because I'm a control freak I'd rather be there from the beginning yeah, right sure. cuz I will I will know how the team arrived at the decisions they made, because I will have been part of that conversation, right? right? right. And I I do think there's something about being there before the show lives and breathes that's A, really exciting, and B, helps you kind of get under its skin in a way that once you come and it's fully formed is not quite the same, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I do think a lot of what we do in the beginning is on instinct and and not on data, although I'm a hugely, as you can hear, data-driven human. That's why Mm -hmm. we get along, Ollie. But I do prefer to be there from the beginning. I think it it creates a a camaraderie with the team, both the producers and the creative team who I get to know and the agencies. And I think there's kind of a let's put on a show attitude. So I do prefer that. But I have to say, in the last several years, there are several shows that I have come on to, you're right to say, because there's either a problem has arisen or because someone has left and they need to replace that role or because it's, gotten unwieldy and they realize that it's more than whoever's on the team can handle and um, that's been a great experience too you know being able to come on and kind of assess the situation and i've yet to be in a room where i'm like wow you guys did everything wrong right like <laughs> sure, honestly sure. usually sure. it's like you've done everything right so far and let let's talk about how we pivot or what take the next, next step or what we do yeah yeah so if i'm being honest i prefer to be on that from the beginning but I, I find them both equally challenging
0: i guess they my real question is and i say this with no examples whatsoever in mind <laughs> but um when you are there from day one and you don't get that moment to see like how the campaign looks, I always get the impression that sometimes as advertising people we lose a lot of our objectivity as totally. like as to, like how how the person buying the ticket is actually seeing this and, the, and then the focus can shift onto things that are insignificant in like a ticket buyer's mind. I, I actually don't know what my question is now. I, just... do, I do.
1: I think your I think your question was does that make it easier to yeah, like come yeah, in yeah, when yeah, it's yeah. already formed and like be so? Yes and no. Uh, listen, I think one of the things I pride myself on right is trying to really stay objective no matter how close I get to a show no matter how much I love it you know really trying to stay in the process of what is it that we're here to do mm-hmm. why are we making the decisions that we are making what is ultimately our long-term objective is it to it's listen it's always to sell tickets right but is it yeah. to raise the average ticket price is it to increase the volume of sales is it to amplify a specific message we feel like hasn't gotten out about the show sometimes it's all of those things how do we prioritize those things, right? Like, we can get up our own asses, honestly. I bet we've all been in those rooms where we're like talking to ourselves, and then we're we have that moment where we're like, What was I saying? Right? right. <laughs> sure. Campaigns can get there. Well, I've been, I've I'm guilty of it too. We all are, but actually, one of the things I, I try to promise clients when they hire me is that happens less when you have me in the room, mm-hmm. right? It becomes less about, Wait, why were we talking about red versus purple? Like, what were we actually talking about in the first place? Oh, right, we were talking about. Women forty-five in the suburbs who want to see this—not like why red is nicer than purple, right? right. Like I'm—I'm I'm oversimplifying an example, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. you know, um, I think that is my skill set and my specialty and what I try to bring to the table,
0: right getting away we'll get away from marketing a bit we've talked a lot about marketing let's talk about broadway a little more generally sure um you've been doing it for what 20 years yeah a little little longer (laughs) and we've talked a bit about what you've seen change a lot during that time what do you see the next 20 years looking like for broadway or what do you want to see change
1: i want to see more women producing and directing and writing that's such an obvious answer sorry there's a huge eye roll in in podcast land right now but it's really important to me It's really interesting. I went to see The Inheritance and um, I don't want to be a spoiler alert for anyone. There's a very powerful line that one of the older characters says where he's arguing with someone and he says, there are no gay men my age, right? And he's talking about the the result of the the AIDS crisis and how kind of it's decimated his peers and his Mm -hmm. contemporaries. And it made me really think about the business. And actually, when I started in 96, it was kind of the tail end of that crisis, right? We had kind of, knock on wood, survived those who, not me, obviously, but my contemporaries who had survived. and mm-hmm. But when I think back about that, you know, I was at a table. I was probably 22, 23. And then there were men who were 50 and 60. But there weren't – there wasn't really any men in their 30s and 40s. right? And it, I hadn't really, really given it that much thought until I saw the inheritance and thought about the tables that I used to sit around. Uh-huh. And there was less opportunities for women then, right? So that com- those two things combined, I think – caused a little bit of stasis in the industry, both in terms of what was getting produced, how it was getting produced, um, why it was getting produced, which then trickles down into who was sitting around the marketing table, how those people were working, you know, who was in the GM office, how, who was, it, it, it kind of affected all the different parts of the industry. And I've thought about it a lot before from an artistic standpoint, right? I've heard that conversation around tables I've been at for years and years of, oh, we lost a whole generation of artists. And what does that mean? But I hadn't really given a lot of thought of like, we lost a whole generation of us, of, right. right? Of people, again, not me personally, but of, of men and women who who kind of didn't live to their potential and so I do think we're in this finally caught up to there seems to be this real resurgence of like young producers and young writers and and by young forgive me I mean like in their 30s and 40s right because They have enough experience now. There's been enough time passed that they got through their teens and their 20s and into their early 30s where they actually are experts now at what they're doing. And again, that's both on the artistic side of Broadway and on the business side of it. Um, It feels like for the first time in the 20-something years that I've been doing this, there's a real surge of new talent in offices, on the stage, um, in lots of different places. And it feels like that is changing the face of... What it looks like to be a producer, what it looks like to be a marketer, what it looks like to be a star, what it looks like to be a writer. You mm. know, I'm deeply inspired by by Jeremy O'Harris and Rachel Chavkin. And, and you know, Jeremy's a very young example. Rachel's a little bit older. But that's really exciting to me that, that I think it's changing slowly but surely. I also think that, listen, I work in the most commercial version of theater that there possibly could be in the world, right? I don't pretend that I work for some small nonprofit, you know, off, off, off Broadway where, you know, our mission is to insert worthy sentence here, you know, there are so many that there could be, you know, I I am clear eyed about what I do for a living, which is sell mass theater. But that doesn't mean that it can't be smart, and it can't be interesting, and it can't be meaningful or worthy. And so I do hope that we continue to get some more of that stuff on Broadway. And I think we have. And, and P.S., I want to say that doesn't mean that things on their wrapping paper look as commercial as they can be aren't those things as well, right? right? Like, I'm a big believer in... Listen, the world did not know who Julie Tamer was. I mean, the, 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 a small slice of, you know, very high art people knew who Julie Tamer was before Lion King, but guess what? Like, now everybody knows who... Well. All right, take it with a grain of salt, sure. but you know what I mean? <laughs> Lots of people yeah. know who Julie Taymor is now, right? And that's because of a little show called The Lion King. doesn't mm-hmm. get much more commercial than that, right? But it comes from a place of artistry, and I really do believe that. You know, same with Mean Girls and having Tina Fey, you know, come into our world. She she herself will tell you, she's like the biggest Broadway fan, Broadway geek, like the rest of us. And mm-hmm. like. Coming here and being welcomed into our kind of little corner of the world was deeply exciting for her. It still is. You know, I, I have to kind of converse with her on a semi-regular basis for Mean Girls. And she's, I think she's still amazed by it, which amazes me, right? Because right. I'm like, hee, 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 I'm talking to Tina Fey. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I do – I hope that Broadway continues to grow. And I, and I, and I look forward to – I do look forward to kind of more women, more people of color, um, more interesting stories being told in a commercial way because Mm -hmm. that is let's be honest that's what we do
0: yeah right that intersection of like creative integrity and commercial viability is
1: totally it excites me
0: yeah i think that's where a lot of people really like to sit and it is still relatively elusive um it really is but same i hope to see a lot more of it yeah you were talking about the some of the tables you've been at over the Mm. years some of the ad tables um as someone who's been at a lot of those kinds of tables, and you've you know you've seen a lot of shows be very successful. You've seen shows be less successful. Yeah. What would your what's your number one piece of advice be to somebody putting on a Broadway show in terms of making it commercially viable? And by that, I literally mean they have a, a Broadway house and a blank sheet of paper, and right, now sure. you devise the thing to put sure. in. Sure,
1: I think at the end of the day, this is not a very commercial answer, but it's the real answer. You have to have something that's a passion project. It has to come from a place of Artistic integrity sounds heavy, but it's the truth, right? Yeah. Like it, you have to believe in it. You have to have a team of people that believe that there is a, a reason for this piece of art to be shown on a commercial stage somewhere mm-hmm. or not a commercial stage and you get to the commercial layer eventually. Um, I don't think that people who like, you know, feed the little cards into the machine and go beep, beep, boop, boop, here's the equation for commercial success, right? That doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? right? Like. Right. Um,, we've seen those shows. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've worked on some of those shows. But I don't know that that works, right? I, what I do know is, ultimately, the thing that has happened on every show I've ever worked on is the audience tells you if the show's going to work or not. They really do. Yeah. I mean, there's very few shows that kind of fall into that weird in-between place where you're like, it's not selling enough tickets, but the audience seems to really be loving it. I mean, if you're really being honest, right? Like every mm-hmm. listen, we all think our baby's the prettiest in the nursery, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the audience does tell you. Like, you you see it. I mean, word of mouth is still, in 2020, it is still the number one way people see a show. It's people how they hear about it. It's why they want to see it. It's because someone they know in their life saw it and said, you must go do this thing. Right? And some shows are easier. You know, I always say, again, if you're listening to this and you've been in an ad meeting with me, I apologize you're eye rolling, but I always say there, there are some that are better at it than others, right? Let's take Lion King because we've been talking about it. It is very easy to go see Lion King and then say to someone, I know there's no water coolers anymore, uh, you know, on Instagram yeah. and it's amazing. And then the animals walk down the aisle and my head exploded, right? right like right. there's, there's a sentence that is very <laughs> easily accessible about why you like something yeah. that if you have that kind of show and that kind of audience reaction and the audience is. Able to articulate that for you, a it can help drive your marketing campaign. B it absolutely helps sell tickets. Um, and so, if you're being that commercial person who has a theater and a blank sheet of paper, right? Like, yeah. do you have those moments, right? right like. Right. That's one of the things you should like feed into the computer, boop, 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 for yeah. the equation. Yeah. You know, but, and there are shows that it's much harder. Like Mary Poppins is a perfect example. Like Mary Poppins for so many people was so cathartic. Like it made people, we used to do exit surveys and people would be like, I need to call my dad. Like, right? Like they would come out crying. <laughs> right. Like, ick, that's not something you want to like share with the world. Yeah. You don't want, right? But, but we also have that. And then she flies and it's amazing, right? right? Like, right, so right. there was an easy input in that. And, and, we talked a lot about should we make a marketing campaign around like the feelings that this show evokes in people, right? And it, we were like, ick, no, yeah,
0: that's going to be it's bad. a little dark. Yeah, right, yeah. it was a little
1: dark and, and that's hard. And <clears throat> so it's you know, parsing, what does that look like? So I I don't know that there's a good commercial answer other than anyone who works in this business is going to have the exact same answer. I actually think I heard it on one of your earlier podcasts I was listening to, which is, you know, it has to be a passion project and you have to believe in it, mm-hmm. right? If you right. come at it from a completely cynical commercial place, I don't think it's going to work.
0: There was, a, there was a, a strange project in London a few years ago and they tried to write a musical using all the Scripts and scores of the most successful musicals of all time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fed all those into a machine, right. beep, beep, and, beep. Then, and then literally <laughs> had it like write a script and a score of a oh, musical. Man. It was uh, I can barely even remember what it was about, but the whole thing made everyone want to set themselves on fire. yes yeah. was... Because <laughs> yeah. there was there was no creative team. There was nobody like shepherding it and Listen, caring it. I
1: remember it. It was... in the early years of Disney, people being really kind of vitriolic and mad, right? Like mad that we were putting on shows, like right. like the commercial disnification of Times Square and the Disneyfication of Broadway. Well, guess what? Like the people who work on those shows have the most artistic integrity, are the most passionate, are lifelong connoisseurs and experts in their fields of the arts. You know, it's like it may seem cynical on the outside, but you also have to remember a lot of those shows, by the way, were musicals. You know, Beauty and the Beast, when Beauty and the Beast opened in theaters, in movie theaters, not, not the musical, Frank Rich actually wrote the review. He was at the time the reviewer for the, for the New York Times, mm-hmm. the theater reviewer, but he wrote the movie review. I don't know how that happened, but he did. Right. Um, and he wrote, and please don't quote me on this because I'm going to get it wrong, but essentially, I'm paraphrasing, it was, you know, the, the greatest Broadway score right now is not playing anywhere on, in near Times Square, but rather in your local movie theater, right? right? And so I think <laughs> people do forget that about the Disney shows, too. It's like, they were musicals first, right? Like, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um So anyway, yeah, I, I think anyone who does the beep, beep, boop, boop into a machine is probably... Barking right. up the wrong tree.
0: <laughs> and in terms of what does float and sink, it feels to me like it's it's still pretty elusive to have that kind of totally. hit formula. Totally. But it, it's it does,
1: unbelievably frustrating. <laughs> but it
0: does become it does become clearer now like what's probably not gonna land a little further in advance. Do you yeah. think that's true or is uh, it still super unpredictable?
1: I think it's Pretty unpredictable. I mean, I I can recall. I will. I won't name names, but I can recall a few years ago sitting in a room, um, in the rehearsal room where they had invited investors. I was still at stage at this point and watching a a read-through of a show. And I remember turning to, to my boss at stage and being like, "Write a check, write a check, right. like <laughs> let's get in on this." Like it just seemed so commercial to me. Um, and then it came, and it was not. Right. And it was and it was surprising. I mean, it really was. And you and you think to yourself, what? How did? What, where did that turn? Like, well, I'm not sure. And right. I still, honestly, I'm still not sure what happened. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, there is something about what we do. It's why it's like so kamikaze. It's like insane. Please, if you're listening, go into another business. Like, you know, right,
0: right. it
1: really is just nuts. You have to love it to do it because there is no formula that says... This is something that's going to connect. You know, mm-hmm. other shows, you know, I remember seeing a really early reading of Dear Evan Hansen and kind of knowing in my bones that it was going to be what it's become. But again, like I thought that about that other show, too. Right. right. So it is I think it's really challenging. And until because of what the art form is, until you physically put 800 to 1600 people in a room in front of it eight times a week, it's really hard to know. What you're going to get, and what that experience is going to be—it's kind of what makes it so thrilling, right?
0: Right, absolutely. You told me on your way in you spent all day listening to the other episodes of this, so you know what I'm about to finish with. My final question is the same on every interview. Let's say you would never, uh, you would never even discovered theatre. You did not have a things going family. Nobody took you, and that was just not a thing that entered your life. Isn't that sad to think about? (laughs) Do you have any ideas what else you would be doing? Is would you be would you be marketing toilet (gasps) Toilet paper? paper? (laughs) Uh, Uh, What
1: did you talk about your podcast, Toilet Paper and The Lion King. Yeah. Um I, you know, it's a really interesting question. I think I might have been a book editor. Oh sure. Uh, I, I can see that. I I um my other passion my whole life has been reading and literature. It is how I wound up being an English major because I thought, well, right. if I can't get through accounting one or two, I might as well do something that's interesting. <laughs> sure. um, and uh, I really am passionate about reading and about literature. And again, I think being an editor would have a very similar skill set, strangely enough, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to kind of the seeing the bigger picture and seeing the moving parts and what works and what doesn't work. And so... I don't know that as a kid, I would have said to you, I'm going to go be a book editor. But as a grown up, if you can call me a grown up, <laughs> when I have that moment of what else would I do yeah. if I could go back and do it all over again? Another lucrative field publishing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I think maybe that's it. I don't know. When I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But I think that's mostly because I thought it was like I'd be rich and it was sexy. I don't know. <laughs>
0: right, right. <laughs>
1: I don't think I ever really actually wanted to be a lawyer.
0: No, figures. And we all, of course, we all get into this because it's, uh, we're all going to be rich.
1: Yeah, there's that.
0: Michelle Groner of The Groner Group. And you can find out more about Michelle's work at thegronergroup.com. And Mean Girls continues at the August Wilson Theatre. Tickets are at meangirlsonbroadway.com. Putting It Together was produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. Our music is by Ulysses Pekan. Our recording engineer for this episode was Brittany Bigelow. And artwork and editing is by me, Ollie Southgate. You can follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ollie Southie, that's with an I-E, not a Y. Next month we'll be sitting down with another of Broadway's best business minds, and that episode hits your feeds on the first Friday of next month, so that's April 3rd. But until then, goodbye.